You know, all this victory stuff reminds me of a story about a humble minister who was somewhat of a culinary genius. People doubted, people doubted, and yet he won the better than first place trophy at the chili cook-off and is now legendary. You know, I heard that. Stay with me. <laughs> they said that was going on my review. <laughs> you know, whether it's trophies and, and, and fun things like chili cook-offs or Super Bowls and MVPs, the, the Daytona 500, as, as Dave said, the, 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 the donuts and the burnouts at the end of the race for the victor, uh, the Grammys, March Madness, a little thing happening right now. You know, in horse racing, we have what's called the Triple Crown. In golf, it's the majors. The Olympics. Everybody loves the Olympics. In our world, we're always looking for reasons to celebrate. Partly because we like to have bragging rights. Um, My father-in-law, poor delusional man, is a Florida State fan. And it doesn't matter. He doesn't care what they do as long as they beat the Miami Hurricanes. Because then he says, stop it. His whole thing is, I got bragging rights on you boys for another year. Yeah, sure enough. We like that stuff. We like to be able to say how great our team is or how go our favorite player, insert whatever sport team player that is for you. But we also love a good Cinderella story. We don't even care what sport it is. For example, most people in America truly didn't care about hockey until the Team USA, coached by Herb Brooks, beat Russia on February 22nd in the 1980 Olympics, and then went on that year to win gold. In 1999, Sports Illustrated named the Miracle on Ice, that was their victory, the top sports moment of the 20th century. The best part about March Madness is there's always that low-seed school, someone not in the top 10, and they make it to the Sweet 16. And and sometimes they even get to the, the Final Four. It doesn't matter if they win the whole thing. They were barely expected to show up. But, oh, there's, there's victories, a great feel-good story. You know, people who know nothing about horse racing, they know the name Secretariat. They know that's an impressive animal. And, and we can't forget Herbie the Love Bug, the little Volkswagen Beetle that never loses a race because he has so much heart. Okay, maybe, maybe that may have been a stretch, but you get what I'm saying. We love a good victory celebration especially when it comes with an underdog story. People tend to think that the little guy doesn't matter or that the little details don't really mean a whole lot. But Sherlock Holmes said, it's the littlest details that are by far the most important. Today, as we begin to look at, like I said, I call them the three weeks of Easter, not necessarily because that's how many there were, but because that's how much I want to talk about it over the next three weeks. As we look at these three weeks of Easter, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, because we're going to start out in verse 17, but we're going to see victory, and we're going to see defeat, and we're going to see these things through the perception of the people around Jesus. And and as we go down this path, I'm going to pull in some of these small details, some of the things that maybe the people around Jesus may have missed, and we're going to look at it from kind of a different lens. The things we're going to see are going to hint to Christ's ultimate victory over death and sin 
from the very beginning. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for, again, the time that we can set aside, that we can come and celebrate. Enjoy being in your presence. I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, um, we open our hearts, we open our minds, we open everything about us to be receptive of your word today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. By the way, that, that song, Victory, we started singing it now because on Easter Sunday, everybody's going to need to know that one. All right? We're, we're blowing it out of the water, and I'm excited about that. I love that song, and, and man, I've listened to it all week long, and I'm just like, yeah, let's go, because it's perfect. It's what, it's what we're doing, not just one Sunday out of a year, but every Sunday there's victory for us. We need to remember that. As we get into the victory of the triumphal entry, we're actually going to begin a little bit before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And what you need to know is, is as I set this up for you, Jesus has been with his disciples roughly about three years at this point. They have, they've seen many adventures, if you will. They, they've seen him walk on water. They've, they've seen many miracles. They've, they've listened to Jesus share with them and with many, many people great truths about God's word. And here we are as they're, they're getting ready to come to Jerusalem and Jesus predicts his death for a third time. And that's where we're going to start. The Bible says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them or said to him. Uh, He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right here, for the third and fourth time, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. He just finishes, before this, he just finishes telling the whole crowd the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And yet here comes their mother and she still makes this request. Can my sons sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they reply, yeah, we can drink that cup. In case you're wondering, we're talking about two different cups here. James and John, they're talking about the cup of glory. Their mom is talking about this cup of glory. Yeah, we can drink of a cup of sitting at your right hand and your left hand. Yeah, who, who can't drink that? Jesus is talking to him. 
about the cup of persecution that he is about to drink. The same cup he asked his father to take from him later. But then he really confuses him because he says, oh, you will drink from my cup. There's probably a part of him going, yes, we're in. He says, but this is one of those little details. He's telling the disciples they're going to be persecuted because of him. And then he says, to try to clear it up, but to sit at my left or my right, those spots have been reserved for the ones my father has chosen. That's not up to me. But you're going to drink from this cup. They continue on to Jerusalem, and as they're headed that way, Scripture tells us that Jesus heals two blind men, and they also begin to follow him. And this is where things start to get exciting. And like I said, typically this next part is is shared on Palm Sunday, but we're going to get into it. And I want you to think about it this week and and really prepare yourself for what's coming the next few Sundays. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, some skeptics say that Jesus is having them steal these donkeys, but that is not the case. Listen, he says, If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed, and and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now picture this for a moment. Jesus is riding in on the donkey. The disciples are all around him, and and they are seeing and they're hearing these people shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! I can only imagine what they're thinking. They're they're probably thinking back, they're like, Yeah, I can drink from this cup. You say, Hosanna. Yeah, we're with him <laughs> leading the donkey, you know. Step back, please. Jesus is coming through. They're hearing these people shout. They're like, yeah. Oh, insert your parade wave. I can drink this cup all day long. Yeah. They love us. You know, maybe maybe some high fives at James and John, the sons of thunder, doing some chest bumps, you know. Yeah, they're finally getting it. These, these people are shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, these are actually lines from... From Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. They, they were typically sung as a welcome to pilgrims who were coming up to Jerusalem. And, and, and this is entirely appropriate for Jesus right now. But, but there's more that's involved here. And I want to look at that. We're going to look at some of these little details. As the crowd cries, Hosanna. It, it's a Hebrew word. It's Hashiana. It had become a greeting or a shout of praise, if you will. But it actually meant save or help forms of this word were used in the old testament in second samuel 14 4 and in second kings 6 26 they were used to address the king with a need when they would see the king come in so so here they are they're shouting save us king they're they're laying down palm branches and their coats and then they're like save us king people they, they, they carry this kind of 
symbolism of a victorious ruler. The cry of Hosanna, the palm branches, they're an impressive gesture. But, but then the crowd adds another line, blessed is the king of Israel. Clearly at this moment, they see in Jesus the answer to their nationalistic issues. They see in Jesus the answer to their messianic hopes, all these things into one thing. But interestingly enough, earlier in Scripture, we read where a crowd wanted to make Jesus king and he refused them. And then now this crowd is recognizing him as king in the city of the great king in Jerusalem. Here's this this great dream of theirs of a Davidic ruler who would come and liberate Israel, establishing peace and subduing those Gentiles. And by all rights, in their minds, Jesus should have been riding on a horse, entering this city as a victorious king. But remember, he drinks from a different cup. Jesus responds by finding a young donkey to ride on. He makes a mess of this whole picture that they want to paint. He, he says, you know, he could have had a horse to ride in on or some other symbol of power and of conquering, but instead he paints from a different palette. His action of riding on a donkey, it undercuts all that nationalism stuff. It undercuts all those thoughts and it points in a different direction. It, it brings up an image from the prophets that I just read. Once again, we see in God's story is different than our story. He said, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Make no mistake, this is all part of the ultimate victory celebration. And Jesus is indeed king, but not the sort of king they had in mind. John says that the disciples didn't even make the connection with the passage from Zechariah at the time. And sometimes I think we're too hard on the disciples. We're somewhat cynical of them. We're like, how could they miss that? How could, how could they not know what was going on? They, they followed him. They ate with him. They listened to him. They watched him heal people. They watched him perform miracles. How, how can they miss something like this? But let's not be too hard on them. Because at first, they didn't understand all the stuff that's going on. The Bible tells us later that it was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized these things had been written about him and that they had done these things. They didn't get it yet. At the time, they're caught up in the swirl of events and the emotion, and they didn't even really understand what was going on. From what we know of the disciples and other parts of Scripture, we could probably even say that they shared some of these same nationalistic hopes and views of the the people in Jerusalem at this time, the rest of the crowd. You know, the disciples and the crowd, they, they thought that they were honoring Jesus, and they were to the best of their ability at that time, but they didn't really understand the true meaning of what was happening, not even when they were saying, you know, Hosanna. Not even when they were laying down the palm branches. They couldn't, they just didn't put all the events of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the scripture together. And so they couldn't really grasp what had taken place until after Jesus has been glorified, until after he ascended into heaven. You see, they needed to see the revelation at its greatest point and in the depth of the resurrection of Jesus to have the help of the Holy Spirit who wasn't available to them until after all of this took place. And then they would understand the significance of these events. And so we go from this victorious entry with Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And then there's a series of events that happen during the next few days that I find quite interesting. Starting off with Jesus cleansing the temple. He comes in, everybody's, woo, he's here. They're celebrating, the disciples are excited, the crowd is excited. And Jesus goes to the temple... And we start off in verse 12. 
Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. That's a lucrative business. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So, so here he is. At one minute, he's, he's turning over the tables. He's driving out the, the money changers. And then he turns around and he's healing these people that were overlooked. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, this is kind of odd to me, they saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They saw the wonderful things he did and they were indignant. Talk about missing the whole thing. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So what happened there? He rides in on a donkey. He rides in on this symbol of peace and meekness, if you will. And and then he steps up in a big way. He gets everybody's undivided attention as if he didn't have it already coming in. I'm here. He calls the temple his house. He's making a huge statement here. He's saying very clearly, I am. And he sent me. And my house shall be called a house of prayer. You will not make it into a den of robbers. After Jesus cleanses the temple, he goes on to teach five parables about about heaven and being ready for when he returns. And then he gives several warnings to the people around him when he speaks about sheep and goats. And and the, the day and the hour of his return is unknown. He gives a warning about the destruction of the temple and about the end of times. He deals with the chief priests. He calls them out on some of the things they're doing. He calls out the Pharisees and some of their trick questions that they start asking him. And then once again, in chapter 26, he shares with his disciples the plan. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. They come in on this victory parade, Jesus and the disciples. And it's a party and it's celebration. And then he cleanses the temple and then he heals the lame and the blind that are at the temple. So there's still some celebration going on, but he's starting to make people mad. He speaks with authority. He heals. He's able to answer these questions. They, they try to trick him. They said, hey, what about taxes? They show a denarius. And they say, who, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus said, Who's, whose face is on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. My personal humble opinion, I think it's a little flashback to what we studied in the story where when the, when the Israelites wanted a king, the first thing they were told was that you're going to get a king and he's going to tax you. And then here we are all these years later and the, and the same, these, these religious leaders, these Pharisees are trying to trick him. Well, oh yeah, there's a king, but who should we pay taxes to? Hey, God told you this way back. Way back when Saul was made king, he told you who you'd pay taxes to. Why'd they even ask? They knew the answer to that question. They schemed to arrest Jesus. 
You know, this visit to Jerusalem that, that actually Scripture tells us early on when he to, first told his disciples we're going to go to Jerusalem, they warned him not to. They didn't want him to go. It's dangerous up there. They're, they're looking for you. But here all of a sudden, it's, it's looking like a victory for sure. They, they've had a good turn of events and, and then Jesus dumps this on them. Passover is two days away and I will be handed over and crucified. You know, in my mind, that's kind of like saying, you know, to the New England Patriots, hey, great job. You guys won the Super Bowl. Oh, you're not getting a ring. You, you, don't, get, you don't get the bonus check that comes with that. Hey, matter of fact, you're not even getting your last two checks. We decided to keep those. Uh, hey, no hats or T-shirts either that say we won. You're not getting any of that. And the confetti cannons are broken, so there's none of that. And, and there's no trophy. Uh, you know, and most of you won't be playing next season. But hey, good job, guys. You go. Boy, talk about taking all the fun out of the victory. They just spent this great time coming in and, and showing the presence. And hey, Jesus is here. And then he stops short and he says, hey, guys, they're going to kill me. Well, what kind of victory is this? What have we been working for if this is what's going to happen? You know, and, and through the eyes of the disciples, this whole little trip has been a victory from the word, go get the donkey. Nobody has, nobody has told them no. And, and when they did, they tried to, to trick him. It, it didn't matter. Jesus had the answer. Everything was kind of this adrenaline-filled moment. Folks, you need to read Matthew 20 through 25 this week and really get into this whole picture I don't think that even with Jesus telling them that in two days the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, I don't think they got it then either. I think they're like, yeah, you, you've said that. It's like the fourth time you've said that. And, and every time you say that, you turn around and do something amazing. You, you heal somebody or, or, you know, we have this parade or, you know, something cool happens. And, and you hear you say on the way in, they're going to crucify me. And they welcome you with palm branches and, and the, the, the welcome of a king who's victorious. You drove people out of the temple with a whip and the temple guards didn't even arrest you. What do you mean they're going to they're gonna crucify you? You're doing all these amazing things, Lord. You're making it very clear who you are. They, they've already called you king in the city of the great king. You're unstoppable. They can't crucify you. Do they know who you are? Do you know who you are? Maybe they're starting to doubt him a little bit. Do you know who you are? The answer to that question is yes. The one person who never lost focus of who he was and the task at hand, the one person who did everything from his baptism all the way up to this point of his life in submission to the will of God, the one person on the earth who knew all along what was required of him was Jesus. And here in the midst of this triumphal entry moment and all the victory things that are taking place around him, Jesus is still trying to prepare them for what's to come because he knows what what it's going to take to get to the ultimate victory. They refuse to see it though. And we make fun of them for it. But then they're just like us. You know, we have his word. We have his instructions on how to live life. We have his instructions just like his disciples had instructions. He told them what to do. He told them what they would need to do to, to be strong. We're going to get into that a little bit next week. He starts off before he even gets to Jerusalem. Here's your instruction. Go find a donkey with a colt. Tell them it's for the Lord. He tells us, here's my word. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can enter heaven except through me. We have it all right in scripture. It's all written down. It's all explained in great detail how we can have victory. I don't mean momentary greatness where someone says, hey, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? And you say, I'm going to Disney World. That's not the victory I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about eternal victory. We're like the disciples, though. We take something like salvation and we make it so complex. It's simple. Scripture tells us we hear the word of God, believe the word of God, repent of your sins, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And true victory will be yours. I don't know where you are in life right now, but I know this. We can all use a victory. And I want to challenge you to look at your life today. Over the next few weeks, as we read through Matthew, as we look at Scripture, as we celebrate the greatest victory ever, I want to challenge you to read God's Word. Meditate on it. Don't just take my word for it. Meditate on it. Prepare yourself to do whatever it takes to be able to stand up and say, I want to live victoriously for Jesus. It's going to be different for every one of us. Last week, I challenged you all to simply stand up if you believed that we could be the change. And if you were here last week, everyone in this room stood up. Someone said to me later, I know that's going to come around back to us, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) We all agreed that right here in this room, we could be the change. And as we go through these next two weeks, it's time for us to begin to put action to that belief. As part of our response time today, I just want you to do this one thing. As, as we stand today and as we sing, I want you to ask God this question. What would you have me do this week to live victoriously for you? What would you have me do this week to live victoriously for you? Make that a focal point. Not just of this moment, but of your study time. As you're reading through the scriptures, you're reading through Matthew 20 through 25 this week. Make that a focal point. What would you have me do to live victoriously for you? Open yourself up to what God would lead you to do. Will you stand and sing with us and ask him, Lord, what would you have me do? Amen, amen. Be sure to keep them in your prayers this week as you're, you're studying and praying. It's been great to worship with you all today, but now it's time to go. I I want you to remember, there's nothing wrong with March Madness and Super Bowl Sunday and MVPs and the Daytona 500 and chili cook-offs and stuff like that. It's good to look for reasons to celebrate, but never forget the real reason that we have for celebrating and living our life here on earth victoriously is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. The triumphal, triumphal entry was good, but it wasn't the victory. The real victory is just around the corner. As you go this week, don't forget to ask God what he would have you do so that you can live victoriously for him. Have a great week.